Johnny, I am so happy to have you on the show. Board certified nutritionist, best-selling author, and now you are on Morphous. I'm so happy to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's our American Thanksgiving, so it's a perfect day to be talking with you about things because I always feel most thankful when I'm being able to, you know, talk about health and help people get healthier and, and just put it out there. So it's a very perfect uh, confluence of date, Thanksgiving, and what we're doing here today. I, I couldn't agree more. Let's start with your book. I know that you have a new book out. You're a best-selling author. You've written many books on the topic of cholesterol, but tell us a little bit about the new one that just was recently published. Uh, the new one is an updated version of, you'll see the shameless plug behind me, The Great Cholesterol Myths. Uh, we originally put it out around 2010 and it was due for an update. A massive amount of research has been done since then. A massive amount of knowledge has been accumulated since then. So we felt the book really needed a complete revamp. And uh, I, I think it's so important. I've never really been as passionate about any book that I've written. This is my 15th. Uh, because I feel that the message is so relevant for the times. Um, we uncovered research in the book that literally shows that the cause of heart disease is not cholesterol, it's not saturated fat. And what we talk about in the book is so relevant now because uh, the, the conditions that underline heart disease are the same conditions that underline diabetes and obesity, and even as it's turning out, Alzheimer's. And that class of conditions are the comorbidities for COVID. So when you wipe out those, those preconditions, you also save a lot of lives because your immune system now functions better. So I think the message about the dietary change that's needed is, is, has never been more relevant to today. And that's why I'm so passionate about talking about it. But I know you want to get into other things like menopause and andropause and hormones and all that interesting stuff. And I, I love that because what I find, Andrea, and I think you do also, is that the more we look at this from the helicopter view, the more we see that everything's related. Yeah. You know, I, I, I talk to my friend, Daniel Amen, the, the, uh, the psychiatrist all the time. We talk about what's good for the brain, but what's good for the heart. They're the same thing. It's the same diet. I get asked, I know you do too, to write articles all the time. What are the top supplements for brain health? What are the top supplements for heart health? Guess what? It's the same stuff. It's almost the same stuff for almost any condition you can mention because they all seem to have similar antecedents. And if we can treat those root causes, we wipe out a lot of disease and we wipe out a lot of conditions and not 100% of them, but enough to make a substantial difference. And, and that's why I think this information is so important. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more with you, Johnny. So, I, so yes, I, there's a lot of things I want to cover, and I want to start with insulin resistance because as we go into menopause, we know that blood sugar balance is such a crucial topic. It's something that we need to be doing. Explain a little bit about why it's so important. How does that relate to heart disease and to other things that you mentioned? Insulin resistance, we have found in, in not not in our original research, but looking at the research that's been accumulated since 1970 that's hiding in plain sight. There is a very clear path from this condition we call insulin resistance to the entire portfolio of what we call cardiometabolic diseases, which include prediabetes, which as you know, is nothing more than diabetes that they haven't put a number on yet. Prediabetes is diabetes, folks. And diabetes, guess what, is pre-heart disease. 80% of diabetics die of heart disease. They don't die of diabetes. This is a straight line with just a couple of little bumps here and there, but you start with insulin resistance. 10 years later, down the pike, 
you are somewhere in the cardiometabolic spectrum. So what is insulin resistance? And, 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 and another reason why this is so important, by the way, is insulin resistance is treatable. Treatable, preventable, and reversible with diet. That's why it's so important. And it's at the heart of all the diseases. So what is insulin resistance? Insulin resistance is an error in carbohydrate metabolism. It's a, it, it's, your body is unable to handle the carbohydrate load you're giving it. Now, let me be very clear about this. Everybody's overload point is different. It's really important not to take from this discussion that carbohydrates are bad. What's important to take from this is that we all have an individual reaction to carbohydrates, that the carbohydrates we're eating now are different than they ever have been in the history of humankind, and I'll go into that in a minute, and that we have not adjusted to this amount of carbohydrates in the diet. We've been being told to eat this amount of carbohydrates since the 70s. Practically every country in the world has followed the USA with the dietary guidelines in some form of don't eat saturated fat, don't eat animal products, load up on plant-based foods, lots of carbohydrates. That's been the dietary advice for most of the last century. And uh, we have not adjusted to this amount of carbohydrates in the diet. That's kind of the philosophy of paleo and keto and all that. It's like, let's look at what we ate for 2.4 million years. Let's start there, not let's start with the last 100 years. So when, when I say it's an era of carbohydrate metabolism, what I mean is that each of us reacts differently to everything, actually, to foods, to drugs, to nutrients, to everything, to dating. I mean, we're all very individual people, individual needs and tastes and, and reactions. But that said, uh, we basically, we humans have been on the planet for about 110,000 years out of Africa. They say from all of that time we have survived on, thrived on. Our bodies have been nourished by foods that were locally hunted or gathered off the ground or plucked off of a tree or, or fished from the oceans. And those are the foods that should sustain us. So what happens now is we come in, agriculture gets invented about a minute ago in the 24-hour time clock. All of a sudden, we got grains. And that, that's fine a little bit. But now we're eating about 80% of our diet's grains. That's a very big evolutionary shift. And here's and, and it has overwhelmed many more people than anyone realizes. The latest figures from Nina Teichel told me on a panel discussion the other day, 88% of America has some degree of insulin resistance. So let's bring this carbohydrate metabolism thing back to uh, insulin resistance, because as I said, insulin resistance can best be thought of as just your body doesn't know what to do with all this sugar. That's kind of one way to look at it. So the best way is if you're going to look at an error, in metabolism. It seems to me the best way to explain that would be to start with a healthy metabolism. Let's look what, at, at what metabolism is supposed to look like, how it's supposed to perform. And then we have an idea of what happens when things go south. So if you look at a young kid, it, it, let's go back into the 1950s before we had, you know, everything was on video and there were micromanaged play dates. So you take a, an average kid, you know, he comes home from school, he's going to go out and play, you know, they're still playing and bike riding and things like that. So he eats an apple before he goes out, his blood sugar goes up a little bit because every time you eat almost every food, your blood sugar goes up a little bit. Pancreas wakes up and says, uh-oh, some sugar's in the bloodstream. Let's secrete some insulin. And insulin is the hormone whose job it is to go round up that sugar out of the bloodstream because you don't want high blood sugar. 
That's a very dangerous situation. We'll get to that in a minute. You don't want your blood sugar going so high. And one of the mechanisms to control that is the pancreas wakes up when the sugar is going into the bloodstream like it did when this kid ate the apple. And now insulin comes along and it acts as a Sherpa and it escorts that sugar out of the bloodstream. Where does it take it? To the muscle cells. Why? Because they need the energy. And that's a perfect fit because this kid, what's he doing? He's riding his bike. He's playing on the jungle gym. He's, he's playing jack. She's playing jack. She's jumping around. She's doing double dutch. They're doing activity. The muscle cells need that sugar. They say, welcome, bring it on in. It gets used for energy. Now his blood sugar goes down a little because it's all been used up. He's slightly hungry. He comes home. He has dinner. Life is good. That's a healthy metabolism. Let's fast forward 30 years. You wake up. You're full of stress and stress hormones themselves create hunger and also contribute to this whole condition. But that's a, we'll put that aside. So now stress is running through your bloodstream. You're waking up. You don't have time to really eat. So you stop at the local co coffee emporium. You order yourself a latte with God knows how much sugar in it. And most of all, you get that low fat blueberry muffin. That can't harm you, right? It's low fat, 900 calories, mostly sugar and starch. Doesn't matter. You eat it. Now what happens? Your blood sugar is now on the roof at a level that it was never, ever meant to be. Nobody was ever meant to eat that kind of food. We didn't hunt 900-calorie, low-fat blueberry muffins when we were paleos. So the blood sugar goes way up. The pancreas goes code blue, and it starts really pouring the insulin in, right? And the insulin is coming in. It's grabbing all that sugar. It's knocking on the cells of the muscle cells, and they're going, hold on, dude. Why do we need all this sugar? This guy's gonna go to the office, he's gonna sit at a computer, he's gonna come home, he's gonna sit with the remote. We don't need any energy, go take that somewhere else. And the cells become resistant. And I always explain it, I grew up in New York. And if you've ever been in New York, you know the noise level is insane. So you live in a New York apartment, what happens? After a while, you don't hear the noise. You get kind of resistant to it. It's like every day it's there. And, and the cells are saying, go away, insulin. They're not even hearing. It's knocking on the doors. They're not even hearing it. So why is this a disaster? Well, it's a disaster on many levels. The first level is you get fat. Why do you get fat? Because when insulin's got this sugar and it's trying to save your life and keep you from having blood sugar that's on the roof, it's going to go anywhere where it's welcome. Guess which cells welcome it in? The fat cells. So now you got your fat cells saying, oh, it's okay, we'll take it, we'll take it. And now all of a sudden you're putting on belly fat. Okay, you're still not diabetic. Nothing really terrible has happened so far. But this continues. And after a while, the fat cell says, no mas, I don't even need it. Now what happens? You've got high blood sugar because there's nowhere to go. High insulin because it's desperately trying to get it out. Well, you've got the beginnings of diabetes. And from there, it just gets worse because high insulin, high blood sugar, beginning signs right away of what we call metabolic syndrome, which is pre-diabetes. And they're now calling it insulin resistance syndrome because that's what it really is. Yeah. And then come the whole panoply of abdominal fat, high triglycerides, low HDL cholesterol. Um, these are the conditions that we call pre-diabetes. These are the things that go with it. High blood pressure, abdominal fat. You all know it. You've all seen it. This is what your doctor looks for. And pre-diabetes just continues on. And it all starts with insulin resistance. And what we show in the book, or what the research shows in the book that we illuminate in the book, 
is that this shows up 10 years before your doctor tells you there's something wrong with your cholesterol. 10 years before your doctor says, your, your fasting blood sugar is a little high, Mrs. Jones, your A1C is climbing. Let's get you on know, one of those diabetes medicines. 10 years early, you can see the signs of insulin resistance. And in one of the studies we quote in the book, it says, if you could treat or reverse insulin resistance, you probably knock out 42% of the world's heart attacks. Wow. That's a pretty impressive number. So that's what insulin resistance is. That is why it is so critical. That is why it is at the heart of all of these diseases we're talking about. I know you want to talk about menopause, so we can bring that in too. But this just makes, that just makes everything worse. Because now you have, you've lost some hormonal support. You have um, the natural course of events is that you get a little more insulin resistant as you get older anyway. So now that's happening in spades. And as you know, the number one killer of women, heart disease. And as far as I'm concerned, if it's in my family, if the woman's in my family, she wants to know what to do to prevent heart disease. I'm not telling her to lower her cholesterol. I'm telling her, what's, I'm going to check her for insulin resistance and I'm going to change her diet so that that insulin starts to be used in the body. And that's the beauty of a dietary change that approaches it in terms of, of curing or treating insulin resistance. You can see that in three days. Because those cells that are drowning in sugar and insulin, you stop feeding them the sugar, all of a sudden, it's like a flood in your car. You know, when you, you get in the engine in the old days before electric, you used to flood the engine, and it wouldn't start. You yeah. leave it alone for a few minutes, right? Things calm down. Now the engine starts. That's what happens with insulin resistance. So you can turn this around. And that would prevent a large number. I'm not saying every heart attack that ever happened came because of this, but that would wipe out so many. It would be like everybody stopping smoking. Wouldn't wipe out every single case of lung cancer in the world. Some people get it without smoking. It would wipe out a lot. Percentage. That's why this is important. I'm taking notes as you're speaking. That's why when I'm looking down, I'm actually- Did I just speak for like 20 minutes and not let you get a word? And I am so sorry, please. I love your passion, Johnny. That's why I wanted you on the show because first of all, such gems. Like everything you're saying, you know, and and we might end up having to break this up into a couple of different episodes and parts because I want to- I want to stay on insulin resistance for a second, and then I obviously want to go to heart disease. So absolutely. Okay, so we're talking about insulin resistance, and you're saying so. Two things I want to I want to touch upon is how to reverse it, how to check how to check on it. Let's park that for a second. But also, I want to talk about type three diabetes because we're on the diabetes topic. How does all of that? How does insulin resistance, especially in menopause and andropause, how does that affect our brain health? Oh, it's such a great question. Well, so about. I don't know how many years ago, but it was a researcher named Suzanne DeMonte, and she started calling Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes, which has been adapted pretty much in the functional medicine community. And why is that so? Because it turns out that insulin resistance isn't just at the core of pre-diabetes, diabetes, obesity, heart disease. It's also at the core of Alzheimer's. And get this, Andrew, when I, when I was in the beginning of the pandemic in March, I must have made about 15 different <laughs> videos on COVID. I mean, sure, you also were asked. We were asked constantly. Every question was about COVID, COVID, COVID. And and um, what, what was interesting to me was when you looked at all the preconditions that made it more likely that you would have a very bad reaction should you contract COVID, right? Because we, let's let's back up. We don't. When all when when the dust settles, it'll probably turn out to be more than half the world has been affected by or has contracted or is a case could be detected to have COVID. But most of them don't know it, and we'll never know it. 
So we don't, do we really care about how many cases? We care about bad reactions. We care about getting sick. We care about dying and going on ventilators. That's what we care about. I don't know if I have it. I've been tested twice. I don't. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. That's not the issue. The issue is, am I going to get sick? What makes it more likely to get sick? Every one of those comorbidities I mentioned. So we talked about insulin being at the heart of them. So all the comorbidities for COVID, all the things, that the, the warning signs that say, oh boy, you better really stay away from people because if you catch this, your odds are not good. You're going to probably get sick. All of those comorbidities that we just mentioned, I knew had insulin resistance at the heart of them, but there were three others that, that I didn't see an association, kidney disease and liver disease and lung disease. So just for fun, I spent a morning doing research on PubMed, the National Institute of, of Health Library, uh, National Institute of, of Medicine in, in the United States. It's all online. It's called PubMed, thousands and thousands of research studies. You know, I'm, you may have told your audience. So I go on there and I put in insulin resistance and lung disease, insulin resistance and kidney disease, insulin resistance and liver disease, particular fatty liver disease. Guess what? Bam! correlated statistical significant correlations through the roof. There's no doubt. So it turns out that insulin resistance has a bigger portfolio than even I thought. It's not just the cardiometabolic diseases. It's also lung, ki kidney, and, and liver. And that brings us to the brain. So what happens in the brain? Well, insulin is needed for the growth of brain cells. Turns out it's kind of like an essential fuel. So now what happens when the brain cells become resistant to insulin? And that's the connection to Alzheimer's. So when they get oversaturated, then that could lead to memory problems as well as dementia and then Alzheimer's. So again, they're saying like, I'm, I'm too, there's too much going on. I'm too overloaded. Go somewhere you else. Get, you, your car's not getting gas. Yeah. It's happening, you know, and now it's starting to sputter. Well, I'm forgetting my keys. I mean, basically, you're not getting the nutrients you need because insulin isn't performing right. And this all goes back to insulin resistance. Now, again, Amazing. we haven't figured Alzheimer's out yet. I know a medical doctor who specializes in that. They argue among themselves, is it the plaques or the tangles and all the different things they see in the brain and autopsies? All I know is that one of the big factors is turning out to be the same big factor that's behind heart disease, that's behind obesity, that's behind all of the cardiometabolic dis, uh, diseases and conditions that we don't want to have as we get older. Insulin resistance. And that's what's at the base of it, the foundation. Wow. I mean, that's so fascinating to me. And the more research and the more interviews I conduct and the more I delve into my, into my books, I'm finding that blood sugar balance and insulin resistance, all of that is at the core and it's so important. Okay. So now let's go back to my two questions. I said, we're going to park for a second. Oh, by the way, I, I just yeah. want to put, I want to do a, a plug for a colleague's book. It has nothing to do with me. I get a book in the mail the other day called The Cancer Code by Jason Fung, who is the godfather of, of intermittent fasting. He is the guru of intermittent fasting. He discovered this whole thing. He's a kidney, he's a nephrologist, a kidney doctor, and he's he's quite a hero in the low-carb keto fasting world. He has a podcast. So he writes a book called The Cancer Code. Okay. Guess what he found? Insulin resistance. <laughs> right in the first chat, I said, I wonder what he's going to, he's going to, I wonder what he's going to say about, I wonder if it's going to be right there in the beginning. He starts explaining the whole thing. I haven't finished the book yet, but the thesis is laid out right in the beginning. Insulin resistance even underlies some forms of cancer. So 
All right, so let's go back to my question about how do we test for it and then how do we prevent it? So I think for all of our viewers who are watching me, okay, I get it. I understand, Johnny, that insulin resistance is at the base of so many different issues that we are either living with or can possibly happen down the road. So what do we do about it? What do we do about it? And how do, we, how do we test it and what do we do about it? As you said, we could test for it or we know about 10 years prior to it happening. So easy. Okay. Um, in the book, we go through all four ways to test. I'll give you a couple of them here. But yep. um, before we talk about how you know whether you have it or not, let's talk about what causes it. Okay. So we went back to that Far example. Of the, yep. Yes, but but let's but let's look at, at the, a little bit deeper dive into that. So the kid ate an apple. His blood sugar went up. Let's look a little bit more at the kinds of things we actually do eat. So they fall into three basic categories, carbohydrates, protein, and fat. So if we want to raise blood sugar, what is the group of the macronutrients, the group of foods most likely to raise it the quickest? That's without question, carbohydrates. It's number one, two, and three. It's like location, 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 and we all say it. Now, does protein have an effect on blood sugar? Yes, it does. Um, it has a mild effect on blood sugar. Nothing like carbohydrates, but yeah, it does go up. What do you think doesn't move the needle on I would blood say sugar? Fat. <laughs> so here's the one macronutrient that doesn't move the needle Amazing. on the very things that cause heart disease, diabetes. And what do we recommend as a diet for those people? A diet high in the one macronutrient that sends that stuff through the roof and low, yeah. in fact, the one macronutrient that has no effect on it. This is the most, I, I struggle to find a word to capture the stupidity of these dietary guidelines, of giving diabetics a high carbohydrate, low fat diet, of giving any of us carbohydrate low fat diet unless you're a marathoner in South Africa from the Bantu and you were raised on that kind of a diet. It's just crazy. So since we know that that's what causes it, what do you think the dietary intervention might be to reverse it? Duh, high fat, low carb. Right. And that is really truly how you turn this around in about 72 hours. So, okay, so for people who are watching are saying, okay, get it high fat. So is that, are you referring to a keto diet? Are you referring to a paleo diet that can be, you know, integrating more fat into it? Is there a specific diet you're talking about? Or you're just saying, you know what? No, just incorporate more good fats, which we're going to talk about the type of fats that we should be eating and how that affects heart disease. Cannot get wait to get into that because ladies and gentlemen, whoever's watching, <laughs> ladies and men, it is fascinating what Johnny's going to tell us about oils and that we're going to do in part two. So Johnny, we're going to, we're going to do that in the second part of this video. Okay. So let's go back. So diet, keto, paleo, like how should we be eating? Because it is, because genetics do play a big role. So for someone like myself, I know genetically, I can't digest fat very well. So following a keto diet for myself just doesn't work. I get nauseous actually, if I have too much fat. So right. paleo is something that I'm eating a little bit more of, but I'd love to hear your perspective on this, on terms of how we should be eating. So after I've had 30 years in this field, I started in 1990, this is 2020. And here's the piece of wisdom or a guiding star for my nutritional values that has evolved after 30 years of trying every diet that's ever been written and writing about every diet that's ever been uh, invented. I'm a diet agnostic. I don't really promote any diet. 
I, I have a basic principle of eating and the rest is details. And the basic principle that I think is the single best piece of nutritional advice that anybody ever gave or anybody ever got is three words and it's this, eat real food. Now listen, before you think, oh, that's simplistic, that covers every, there's not a instance that you can give me, not a condition that you can present where that won't work. And that isn't the template from which you start. I don't care if it's keto or paleo, or I don't think vegan diets are generally healthy. They need a lot of supplementation. But, but my point is there is a spectrum of ways that you can proportion carbs, fats, and proteins. You mentioned you don't um, do well on a very high fat diet. There's a genetic, uh, 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 there's a, a gene called the ApoA2 gene that has a lot to do with how you metabolize fat. People have different ways of, of doing that. There are uh, colleagues of mine here in America who are uh, a nutritionist, functional nutritionist, who have found in their practice that many women don't do as well on keto diets as many men do. That doesn't mean there aren't people. There's there are female athletes who are pro keto and they you know they have websites and they're just all ripped and stuff but they're outliers. I mean, there are some that, that don't do that well on it. And there are people who, there are people I will have to admit that have thrived on vegan diets. Not as many as you might think, but there are some. Clearly there's a spectrum here. Nobody, nobody, no culture, no human, nobody has thrived on a high sugar diet ever. So if we start with the premise, which is the real food premise, and, and uh, in terms of a, 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 a prescription, what I always use for that, well, how do I know what's real food? Okay, it's very simple, <laughs> very simple. If you showed this food to your great, 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 great grandmother, would they know what to do with it? Or would they say, what is that? If they would say, what is that? I'm not sure. It's not real food. If they would know, exactly, oh, yeah, give it to me. I'll go cook it up. It's real food. So if you're asking yourself, well, what about these kale chips? No, the kale chips are not real food. They are a food product. And if you're not sure, put it in the food products list and keep it away. Because real foods spoil when you leave them outside. Great, great grandmothers recognize them as food. And here's the number one thought test to use. If I were naked on the African Serengeti with a sharp spear, what would I eat? that's gonna be good for you. It's food you could hunt, fish, gather, or pluck. That, and you start with that, then you can be on the carnivore diet. Maybe all you eat is food you could hunt. You can be on a vegan diet. Maybe all you eat is what you pick and what you gather. Maybe you could be on a paleo diet where anything local, anything I can find that I can eat, all of them work. So I, I really never proselytize for a diet. I proselytize for real food that you could hunt, fish, gather, or pluck because that will wipe out most of the conditions we're trying to treat with diet. Well said, Johnny. I do want to clear up though the kale chips because there are kale chips that are healthy that we can make ourselves and put some olive oil on and some garlic and some sea salt and put it. But you're talking about chips in general that have added ingredients like preservatives and MSG and all this bad stuff is what you're going for is what I'm guessing. I think what I'm really talking about is health food imposters, you know, things that we all think, well, it's made from kale. Well, it, 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 it had whole grains in it. 
if you have to wonder, I'm talking about processed foods yeah. and try to get a label of like, oh, it's made with kale chips or, oh, these are just baked vegetables. They're all still processed food. Just yeah. read the ingredients. It's, it, as far as they come from the, the origin food, that's you want it as close to the origin food as possible. Now, obviously, oils, good cooking oils, they didn't, you didn't just collect them, but they're minimally processed. Like a, a really extra virgin olive oil, it's as close as you can get to a bunch of old Greek men who are stomping on the wine bottles with their feet. You know, there's no big uh, caustic chemicals and high heat and all kinds of things like that. So you just want it as minimally processed Very as possible. possible. And that's really what I'm after. And that's, yeah. well, that's what I meant when I used, I didn't mean to signal kale chips, but this is a slippery slope. We've seen yeah. so many people come in with nothing but foods that you can buy in bags and boxes. And I mean, they literally have moved very far from the original kale, if you will, and live very much in the in the in the world of kale chips and things like that. And we really just want to get back to real food. Well, like Michael Pollan says, shop the periphery of the store, right? So don't go down the middle aisle, shop too. But and obviously a whole, yeah, and like and Whole Foods obviously is what our body's meant to process. So what our body, you know, our, our liver understands whole foods they understand fruits and vegetables and meats right and all the good stuff so and they understand and our appetites understand it i always used to use this example and i'll bet you it's, it's as relevant today as it was 30 years ago you sit and watching reruns of what i don't know what you have in canada friends seinfeld right we have easy, a lot of what you have <laughs> oh good how easy is it to eat very Two, three four bowls of yeah. cocoa krispies yeah come on everybody's done it unconscious it's very easy there's no it's almost like your appetite has no no shutoff point when you're eating that now compare that to steak and brussels sprouts you think you're going to eat six steaks and six portions of brussels sprouts Definitely while you're not. watching seinfeld <laughs> no because there are built-in appetite control mechanisms the food is the body sees that and goes oh i know what that is the stomach goes hmm let me release some CCK, which is a hormone that goes to the brain and says, this dude's had enough to eat because it recognizes it as food. It's getting nutrients from it. That's what it expects to get from it. When you eat this crap that is nutrient depleted, that has nothing in it, the body says, well, where's the food? Where's the food? Where's the food? That's your craving. People want to know, how do I get rid of cravings? Eat real food. These foods create the cravings because they're basically telling your body, this ain't giving us any nutrition, but wait, there's a lot of sugar and fat in quite a salty little wonderful combo there that makes my brain go, I'd like more of that. I'd like more of that. I'd like more of that. And we are like little chimpanzees that are, I mean, little pigeons that are pressing a button in okay. a Skinner box because we need more reward, more reward. And that doesn't happen with real food. Actually, your body knows what to do with it. Yeah. Thank you for the information. Thank you for the nutrition. I'm feeling full. I think my brain will calm down. I'm not looking for a dopamine hit of more sugar. And I'm kind of like right in the zone. That's what real food does. And that's what blood sugar balance is as well, right? So we're even keeled. 100%. Our, our moods aren't all over the place. We're not in a specialty in menopause. I mean, Mood plays such a big role. It is such a side effect or sign and symptom of being in menopause. I, I know myself personally. So when you're eating healthier, when you're eating real food, it helps to keep that blood sugar balanced, which helps to keep our mood balanced as well. And, you know, before we end part one, what I, I want to make sure that we touch on the test you were talking about. Like, how do we know? So we're going back to those 10 years prior to understanding how do we know that we have it? What are some tests that we, you know, some good information that the women who are watching or men could say, okay, 
How do I know I have it? How do I test for it? And then we're going to move on to part two and talk about all the good stuff about heart disease and oils and all of that. Okay. So, so in the book, we give all four ways to measure insulin resistance. And they range from the one I'm going to give you now, which is low tech, free, and you can do it at home, folks, okay. all the way up to LabCorp's LPIR test, which is a very sophisticated particle test for cholesterol. It's just the, it's the state of the art. And these tests aren't, by the way, very expensive, but there's a lot of different ways to test for it. The one that I like the best that is most dramatic that you can do at home. And again, it's not as perfect as a medical test that has actual numbers and stuff like that, but we're talking 95% accurate. So here's what you do. You stand in front of a wall, a few inches, six inches from the wall. You walk slowly towards the wall. If your belly touches the wall before your nose, 95% certain that there is some degree of insulin resistance. Another one in that same category is men. If you've got a waist over 40, women, if you've got a waist over 35, very, very, very likely. Those are good starting points that you don't have to spend a dime for and that you can do right in your house right now. And don't feel bad if you if the, that test says, uh-oh, I think I've got some, because at least half the world has some. And the, the statistics we quoted in the book, I think, were, were too conservative. They were saying 50, 52% of the world. In the United States, it's 88%. Uh, it's way higher than 50. It just depends on how far, what, what number you need to define insulin resistance at. But it is a process. It starts very early, and it can be reversed very early. It can also be reversed fairly late. So this is the time to start making those dietary changes. And what about the A1C test? How do you feel about that? The A1C test is, it, it is the, for those who don't know, that's, that's the way they diagnose um, diabetes. It's, it's what's considered a late marker. It, it, yeah, it's great test. By the time your A1C is over six, <laughs> some damage has been done. Why not catch it? Before it gets there. But yes, the A1C is, in fact, the hemoglobin A1C test is the standard for diabetes. Um, but, but, Andrea, we should also point that out in context. There's always a standard for, like, high blood pressure. When does it start? Right. Well, 140 over 90. They have a number, but what happened to 139 over 89? I mean, there's a continuum here. So you don't have to wait until you get the diagnosis of diabetes. Uh-oh, 6.3. You're diabetic. How about you start working on it at 5.8 or 5.9 or 6.0? Because you can prevent it from going there. And it's a very short distance to the diagnosable level of high blood pressure or high insulin or high uh, uh, blood sugar. And the one that's right before it. So we want to get it over here. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so we're going to end now part one and we're going to go to part two. So Johnny, could you just show us your book? Because you said that there are the other tests in your book. Can we just do a big plug for it? So if anybody wants to buy Johnny's book, I highly recommend it. We're going to put a link to it below as well. The Great Cholesterol Myth. And um, so there are the other that's tests. that's the update. You got to get the revised and expanded one because we didn't have this information about insulin resistance in the first edition. Okay. That's what's so really, mo thank you. Yeah, of course. Talk. And then we're also going to put a link to Jason Fong's book that you mentioned as well. So if people want to buy that, thank you for that's nice that you're plugging your friend. Okay, Johnny, let's uh, move on to part two. We're going to end it now. We'll see everybody over uh, on the next video.